This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Listeners, welcome to Murky Waters, a podcast created to communicate the extraordinary life of sharks by the experts who study them. If this is your first time tuning into Murky Waters, hello, and a very, very warm welcome. I'm Michael Heltzinger, your host for the next half an hour. On today's episode, we dive into the science of sharks, and I interview a shark scientist to get as many facts as I can about these jawsome predators. We talk about the history of sharks, what senses they have and which is their strongest, how do they reproduce and do sharks sleep. We also talk about how scientists today are studying sharks and what global warming might do. The scientist is Dr. Sammy, who is currently a research fellow at Stanford University in California. Sammy is passionate about sharks, so I'm very excited about this interview. And without further ado, let's dive right into it. G'day, Sammy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Could you please introduce yourself and tell the listeners what got you into studying sharks and why? Hi, everyone. I'm Sammy Andriarche. I'm a shark scientist currently living in Monterey, California. I just finished my PhD on sharks and now I'm a fully paid scientist who gets to study sharks, which is, in my opinion, the best job in the world. I got interested in sharks mostly through growing up in Western Australia, snorkeling as a kid. I think from the age of seven, I said I wanted to be a marine biologist. And then through high school, I watched a lot of Shark Week documentaries. And when shark water was first shown, I just became so interested in sharks. I found them fascinating. And I also just thought they really needed some more people sticking up for them. They're such misunderstood animals. Yep. I thought, well, what would be the best job is to follow what you're most interested in. Straight out of high school, I've tried to pick the best university to study sharks. And that university was at JCU? Is that where you did your undergrad and then you went to UWA after that? Yes. So I went to James Cook University. I was looking at universities in Western Australia, but I got turned off on one of the open days when I asked how much field work and how much shark science was involved and <laughs> someone took the time that they just did a lot of seagrass. Yep. <laughs> I was pointed in the direction of JCU and then from there a lot of doors opened and then went back to Western Australia because there were some great projects on sharks that I followed up on. The last time I saw you presenting your PhD thesis work, what was your PhD about? So my PhD looked at the diving behavior of sharks. So it was looking at movement, but when we usually think of movement in sharks, we think of horizontal movement. So movement along a coastline, across the ocean basin. But I was looking at the up and down, the vertical component and why sharks move in this vertical way. So what diving behavior, which really hadn't been done much before. So many different species of sharks and they all exhibit similar patterns of vertical movement. Yeah. I really got up and close into some tagging data. I got to do some really cool tagging trips. 
How do you study sharks at different depths? Like what technique do you use? Tags tell us a lot about vertical movements. Some tags look at long-term behavior. They record depth and temperature so we can see what they're doing. Some tags attach for a year or so so we can look at longer-term vertical behaviors. And then we also have some brand-new tags, the latest technology that record really fine-scale behavior. So as well as the depth component, we have some of the same sensors that you find in your smartphone, so accelerometers and compasses and video cameras so wow. we can look at really fine-scale vertical movement behavior over a couple of days, what's going on in the daily behavior of a shark. Those tags, are they just recording stuff for a day or is it long-term stuff as well? At the moment, we're limited by battery and storage. So those ones that record a lot of information only go out for a day or two. But then we, the ones that just record depth and temperature can go out and test things over seasons or a year. But I'm sure in the next few years, hopefully, we can extend the battery life and get more data and get so much more information about what's going on at these fine scales. What species of shark were you focusing on your PhD? My main study species was the tiger shark, which I'd say is also the best shark. Absolutely. They're my favorite shark as well. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Super interesting animal. I also looked at oceanic white tip sharks and and bar sharks, and then I did this big meta-analysis that looked at pretty much all species that have been tagged and existing data from yeah. them. And what was your meta-analysis? What was this about? It was like a, a lit review, but it was called Patterns and Drivers of Vertical Movement of Large yeah. Epipelagic Fishes. It had sharks, but also interestingly, tuna and billfish and sunfish and rays also exhibit really similar patterns. So I was looking at all of these animals and the patterns they were showing and then what was driving them. So they were all following a similar pattern. Have you done any other work with sharks? Before my PhD, I did an honours thesis, which looked at whale sharks, using photo ID to look at movements in the Indian Ocean. And then throughout my PhD, I was lucky to do some consulting work, showing different groups of people how to use the tags I was using, which was really cool, really rewarding. I got to Mm -hmm work with Conservation International in Indonesia and getting to see some big problems going on there, but also showing how tagging can help offer some solutions. After your PhD, what are you doing now? Now I've just started here in Monterey in California, a postdoc with Professor Barbara Block. Barb's actually a tuna expert, so Mm -hmm. she wants me to love tuna as much as she loves tuna, which is going to (laughs) be hard. How's that going right now? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm getting there. Tuna are really cool. I'll definitely still be working on sharks uh, the time I'm here, but also getting to learn about tuna, which are fascinating animals as well, and I can apply some of the techniques I learned from tuna on sharks. Going back to your honours project on whale sharks, you said you did photo identification stuff with them? Yes. How do you ID different whale sharks? So whale sharks are really cool. The side of their bodies, so their spot and stripe patterns are like fingerprints. Each individual has different patterns. And so by taking photos of these patterns, you can identify individuals. And then through that, you can see if these individuals are returning to the same spot every year, if they're moving to different locations. It's a super cool way. We can also get citizen scientists involved. A lot of tourists swim with whale sharks and take their photos. So big databases of photos, which work as data for us to look at whale shark movements. My understanding, this was in Western Australia, next mouth. Is that right? Yeah. And did you see any migratory movements of the whale sharks? 
Surprisingly, no. I had a big photo database from all over the Indian Ocean. So I had photos yep. from Seychelles, Mozambique, the Maldives, Christmas Island, and I didn't see any large-scale movement patterns. I saw one individual move from Mozambique to the Seychelles, and that was it, yep. and I had 8,000 images. So <laughs> <laughs> I was dreaming of spot patterns for weeks. <laughs> A lot of individuals just come back to the same place year after year. We even had one individual come back after 20 years, still coming back to Ningaloo Reef. Yep. So that's really cool. I think their movements are quite regional. They keep around the same area. So good for management because yep. imagine having to manage this population at a cross-ocean scale amongst a ton of countries. It would be really difficult. From that point of view, it's a good thing. And whale sharks, what's their conservation status? They're like endangered They're now, endangered. Yeah. recently been listed as endangered, unfortunately. Oh, okay. I want to give the listeners an introduction to sharks in general by a real shark scientist like yourself. How many shark species are out there in our oceans? And how long have sharks been around for? Over 400 million years or so. 400 uh, million years. Yeah. From about 450 million years ago, they found shark-like scales, but no teeth. They think there may have been this shark-like animal that was toothless to begin with. A gummy shark. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sharks, they're still being discovered and there's always debate about taxonomy, but over 400 species of shark and we've got around 1,000 species of chondrithians. So that's the sharks, rays, skates and chimeras. So that's chondrithians? Yes. I'm going to go to basic biology of sharks. How do yeah. sharks breathe? How do they reproduce? How do they give birth? So shark reproduction, super interesting, I think. The males have claspers, so they're extensions of their pelvic fins, these fins on their underside, and they use these to transfer sperm to the female. Yep. But we still don't really know a lot about where these animals mate, how often. It's so rarely observed in the wild. It's really interesting. So many questions surrounding shark reproduction. And then there's also a lot of different ways that once they've reproduced, how they give birth. Some lay eggs, some are live-bearing. One of my favourite facts, yeah. the great shark, also called the sand tiger shark, they have really large embryos and the pups feed on each other. So that's how they get their nutrition in the womb, they're cannibalistic. Oh, what? Yeah, it's yep. insane. So it's like survival so it's- of the fittest before they're even yes. in the marine environment. exactly. I think they make double the amount of embryos they need, knowing that half of them will get devoured by other pups in the womb. It's crazy. Oh, gosh, that's cool. Another cool fact, they don't really know much about whale shark reproduction either, yep. but it was a whale shark in Taiwan and it had 300 embryos in it. So they can probably reproduce a lot of pups, which is a good thing. How long is the gestation period? Like a shark's fast growing, slow growing? A lot of sharks are slow growing, but they're some faster growing and breeding species. And those are the ones that tend to be the most sustainable in terms of being caught. But for the most part, when we describe sharks and why they're so vulnerable in general is that they are slow growing, slow reproducing species. Yep. If they get fished heavily, their populations will take long to recover. Yeah, exactly. How do sharks breed? Some people say they have to keep swimming all the time. For most of them, that's true. They have to just keep swimming, which means they never really get a rest. But then there are some exceptions to that rule. So some sharks can actively hump water over their gills, which means they can sit on the bottom and rest. 
uh, sharks, lemon sharks, white tip reef sharks, you can see them chilling on the bottom so they can actively pump water over their gills. What a cool adaptation. And yeah. which is their strongest sense? Does it vary between species? It does differ between species, but in general, I'd say smell is their best. But they've got a lot of other cool senses that we as humans don't have. Like us, they can hear and smell and see and touch and taste, but they've yeah. also got two additional senses. So they've got these things called ampullae of Lorenzini. Mm-hmm. So these little pores around mostly their mouth that detect electrical fields. A small scale from what we know, and it's yeah. probably used in low-light settings. Just before they capture something, these electrical fields can sense exactly where an, their prey is. Mm-hmm. In addition, they have a lateral line canals that run down their body that can sense pressure changes that's called the line system yep. that could detect these really small changes in ocean currents and it might allow sharks to detect the location of other animals or structures nearby so they can feel where their prey is or where there is something of interest for sure an animal in distress a bit of commotion in the water they might be able to sense that their sense of smell how strong is their sense of smell because you hear of crazy facts they can detect a droplet of blood in an Olympic swimming pool. I don't know if I just made that up. But, yeah, you hear, like, crazy Uh, stats about their ability to smell. I'm not really sure. I've heard those stats, and I think in terms of blood, it can be these really minute concentrations. I'm also always questioning whether the whole they can detect your pee thing is true or not. I saw a myth that it's not true, but then I also still think about it when I'm out surfing. (laughs) Cold water here, and what you got to do? What you, you got to do? <laughs> yeah, same. I'm in New Zealand. I hear our sharks are so good. They are surprisingly better than a lot of people think. I don't yep. know why. Often people don't think their eyesight's that good, but I think it is quite good. And it also, again, differs a lot between sharks. So I know tiger sharks. It's more specialized looking upwards, so their eyesight is better to look up, which makes sense because they're often looking for silhouettes of yep. prey at the surface. It tends to be specialised depending on how they feed and what they feed on. Mm-hmm. Do sharks sleep? The ones that can rest, the ones that don't have to swim to ventilate their gills, they may be able to have some form of sleep. But for the other sharks, they have to keep swimming. We don't really know if, let's say, they're shutting off half their brain like dolphins are thought to do. What we do know is they can use the way they move to rest. The vertical movement behaviour, they do these up and down movements and because... Most sharks are negatively buoyant, which means they're heavier than the weight of water and if they stop swimming, they just sink down. They can use this to advantage and on the way down, passively glide. They don't have to beat their tail and in that way they can rest. And then on the way up, they have to actively beat their tail. They may be able to use that as a form of sleep on the way down, passively drift and save some energy and then beat their tail, wake up on the way up again. Do you know if there's been any recorded footage of sharks sleeping? I have a feeling very recently there was a video somewhere that said that they were recording a shark sleeping. I don't know if it actually was sleeping, but it was probably doing one of those drift dives on the way down and looking non-alert. I guess we don't really think about sharks sleeping when we think of a shark. No. (laughs) I want to talk about your study species for your PhD. The tiger shark, why does it have the stripe pattern on its body? It's thought to be a countershading pattern. It camouflages it moves through the water. So if you're looking down, it's countershaded, it's blocked out, so you may not see it coming from below you. It's sort of an ambush predator. The tiger shark, do they have a preferred depth? 
from many studies, they're what we call yo-yo swimmers. So they're continuously moving up and down through the water column. Yep. They tend to face their coastal areas. They're not that deep. When they are migrating, they have had tags track them to over a 1,000 metres in depth, which is crazy. Oh, wow. And it's crazy. The number of shark species that dive to over a 1,000 metres is insane. They have tags of a whale shark diving to 1,900 metres. And the only what? reason we haven't reported deeper is because our tags are limited by pressure. So they're limited to 2,000 metres anyway. So for all we know, whale sharks are diving deeper than two kilometres down. Can sharks regulate their body temperatures, especially if they're diving so deep? For the most part, they're all what we call cold-blooded. There's five species. The lamnids, which are partially warm-blooded, they have some degree of physiological regulation of their body temperatures. The lamnids include our white sharks, our makos, our salmon sharks, and they have these counter-current systems that allow them to keep their body temperature up to, I think, 10 to 15 degrees above external temperature. For all the sharks, they're cold-blooded, so they can use what we call behavioural thermoregulation to regulate their body temperature. So if they're getting too cold, they might come up into surface waters where it's warmer. Mm-hmm. If it's, again, warm, they go down where it's cooler to cool off. They really utilise the water column to regulate their body temperature. When I think of distribution of sharks, I think of horizontally, but it's really interesting to try and understand how the shark's distribution changes over the depths. Yeah, and that's something so non-intuitive to us as people because we're moving two-dimensionally, horizontally. We don't have this vertical component. And if you walked 100 metres across, you wouldn't see any change in temperature. But if you went 100 metres down, it might change by up to 10 degrees, which is so challenging to think about. How long can sharks go without food? Debatable. (laughs) (laughs) Always been questioned, especially for white sharks and tiger sharks. It could be several months, so they often do these long cross-ocean migrations where for the most part they're probably not feeding while moving between different foraging or breeding areas. Mm -hmm. That's why you see the white sharks, the tiger sharks, gorging themselves on, let's say, a whale carcass and being able to survive off that for several months. But Mm -hmm. we're really not that sure, to be honest. So is there quite a lot of science about sharks that we still don't know? There's so much we don't know and it's so cool at this time because technology is just getting better and better and we can find out so much more. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you believe is the biggest threat to shark populations right now? Overfishing without a question. We're catching up to 100 million sharks a year, both by bycatch and targeted fishing. That's just way too many and shark populations have undergone drastic declines so without question that is the biggest threat there's a lot of bycatch and a lot of unreported catch which is one of the more worrying factors we can't actually put a number on how many are being caught without them being reported especially with tuna fisheries they're catching sharks on long lines Mm. and without recording the numbers yeah that's a big thing if people are bycatching sharks if they're actually recording it as well Yeah, exactly. And also you could say, oh, I caught it and I released it, but did it survive afterwards? How do you know that you would just dump the shark overboard? And unless it's tagged with one of the tags you were talking about, like the accelerometer, I guess there's no way to tell. Exactly. And sharks, again, so much variability in how they survive being caught. Hammerheads, for example, are so vulnerable to capture. Tiger Mm -hmm. sharks are pretty hardy animals. They can be caught overnight and released and they'll be absolutely fine. Tiger sharks, the hardy shark, what <laughs> what do they usually hunt or prey upon? 
Tiger sharks are called the garbage bins of the sea. They eat everything, anything that's easy and fits in their jaws. Their stomach contents have everything from the usual suspects such as turtles and rays and fish to some really weird things like car tires and chicken carcasses and cans of spam and nails. Are they found all around the world? They're predominantly coastal in tropical and warmer temperate areas, but tagging has shown them moving into cooler waters and, again, undergoing these long migrations into open ocean areas, for the most part, coastal areas. Do you know how fast tiger sharks swim? They're surprisingly slow. I think on average three to four kilometres an hour. They're pretty lazy animals. They probably move as slow as they possibly can, and they can burst at about 10 kilometres an hour or so. Mm -hmm. And were they a good species to work with for your PhD? I loved working with them for the most part. The part I didn't enjoy, they have so much individual variation, it was just so hard to work out patterns in the data, which just mm-hmm. gave me a headache after the whole tagging trip. But the tagging <laughs> was amazing and, yeah, they were great animals to work with. Because you're a shark scientist, I want to ask, how do we scientifically study sharks? Talked about tagging, but are there any other methods we can use? really depends on the questions. For movements, obviously tagging is one of our best methods, but we can also use the photo identification like I use for whale sharks. They can use that for dorsal fins, for instance, with white sharks to look at movement. And for other parts of diet, there's a lot of observation. We can do isotope analysis. We can look at stomach content. So back in the day when they used to catch a lot more sharks for fishery science, there was a lot of stomach content analysis that Mm -hmm. taught us most of what we know about shark diet at the moment. We can do experiments with direct observation. We have the brubs, which Mm -hmm. I think you use. Yeah, right up my alley. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) remote underwater video systems, we can look at behavior. We can look at populations. We can look at ecosystem level communities. There's one technique I want to ask you about. Can we use environmental DNA to study them now? Yeah, if a shark's really, really rare, it's highly unlikely we'll catch it, we'll see it, even if it is around. And environmental DNA offers a means for us to see if it's been in a certain area within a given time. So we can just get a sample of water straight from the ocean and see what animals are present. It's a really cool technique for looking at these sharks that are getting rarer and rarer in our oceans. Wow, that sounds just super efficient because you can go out and just take a water sample versus doing so many other sampling techniques. Yeah. It's advancing so quickly, so I'm sure before we know it, we'll be able to do so much more with it. I'm dreaming of a future where we can count the number of sharks that have been in an area in a small amount of time and look at really fine-scale movements between areas, getting down to the level of individual. So many different ways we can study these animals, and I learn more about them almost daily. I want to talk to you about global warming. Do you have any understanding of how global warming will affect shark populations? don't know for sure exactly what's going to happen, but because, as I said, sharks are so temperature dependent in their movements, the warming water column is going to affect where they're distributed and where they're moving and how they're moving. One of my studies of my PhD looked at how temperature affected the vertical movements of oceanic white tip sharks, and I found when sea surface temperatures got really warm, they shifted their distributions into deeper waters and changed the ways that they vertically behave. Again, this vertical component comes in useful because you can get cooler much quicker by moving down than you would across. Mm-hmm. But then the problem is that your prey species may not change their distribution in the same rate that you do. It's what we call a prey mismatch. 
your prey might have less tolerance to the changing temperatures, might move further away or deeper than the shark does. So their food might be distributed in a different area after we see years of change in the ocean's temperatures. Mm -hmm. So basically some shark species potentially could starve because their prey distributions are moving into different areas. Yeah, exactly. And then also I guess we really don't know what's going to happen to their prey species. Are their prey species going to survive? It's just the whole food chain effect. What happens to one species is going to affect everything else. And it's a really complicated thing to understand. And is there a lot of science about sharks and their response to climate change? I think not a lot. We know too much in the wild. The smaller shark species, it's much easier to have them in a lab in captivity and to study their effects to changing temperatures, to changing pH. But for larger sharks, I predominantly work with it's unethical and not a logistical option to have these animals in captivity and test how they're going to respond to changing environmental conditions. Can sharks be kept in captivity? Smaller sharks can. There's quite a few labs I guess work with say Port Jackson sharks, epaulette sharks. They're small and you can ethically and logistically keep them in captivity. For the bigger ones it's a lot more difficult. Actually, they had a juvenile white shark in Monterey Bay Aquarium some years ago, which they were able to do some studies with, but it got way too difficult to have that large shark. It started eating a lot of the tuna in the aquarium. So, <laughs> If you could get one message across to everyone listening about sharks and our ocean, what would that be? Sharks are awesome. So much we need to learn about these animals. The more people studying them, the better to get our head around them and all these unknown facts that we still have to learn. Is there any advice or words of wisdom that you would like to give to aspiring shark scientists listening to this podcast? Yes, I would say work hard, do maths. Maths and statistics is super important. Take every opportunity that is thrown at you. I say yes to everything which can get in the way of my life, but it's got me to where I am today. And also, if you have, like me, a high school careers counsellor telling you that you will not work with sharks, mine told me I'd end up in the lab working on microscopic organisms. I ended up dedicating my PhD to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that concludes the episode, and it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on today's show. Thank you so much. That was really fun. And chums, that's a wrap. I hope you learned something new today about sharks and how we research them. Sammy is a good role model if you are interested in studying sharks, proving that you can pursue exactly what you want, regardless of what other people have to say. I'll be sharing a video from the back of a tiger shark, one Sammy tagged in her research. You can find the Murky Waters podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. This podcast is created by Michael Heltzinger, but it wouldn't happen without your support. So... Thank you for listening today. Please share the podcast around. And if you want extra brownie points, subscribe to the podcast online with Apple Podcasts, where you can keep up to date with each episode. And let me know what you think by leaving a review. And of course, if you have any questions or ideas, feel free to send me a message. Thank you to ORFM. You guys are legends. And everyone else who has helped out so far. Claire Kincannon, Nick White, Chris Nodding, Alana and Molly Devine. I also want to thank a friend and DJ, Kieran O'Regan, for the introductory music track. And 
the talented West Australian musician Michael Dunstan for this background instrumental. If you like this instrumental, make sure to check out some of his groovy tracks online. And finally, Sammy, our exceptional guest today. Thanks, Sammy, for coming on the show and inspiring us all. Take care, people, of both yourselves and the planet, and I'll see you next episode. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.